You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmorecc.com. Now here's Pastor Artie Favre with today's message. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue our study of the book of Colossians. And as you know, we started looking at uh, uh, verses uh, 28 through um, 29, I'm sorry, 26 through 29 last week. We're going to hone in on verses 28 and 29 today. And just as a quick review, what we've been talking about is this crescendo of revelation that Paul brings in this book of Colossians. That's why I really wanted us to study it so that we could think about and contemplate these realities. And, and we ended last week talking about the tell of two apples, which is really the tell of two spiritualities. It's really the tell of two trees that were placed in the garden. And, and, and what I, I wanted us to consider and challenge ourselves with is to make sure we're very well aware of which spirituality we have been given ourselves to. And I, and I tried to make the case that, that, that discipleship can't be industrialized. That, that literally there's an entire machine, a complex that is built and studied and written and pursued so that we can all have conformity to the same ideology. But this is not what Jesus came to offer. He didn't call us to conform. He offered for us to experience being transformed. And those are two very different. So we don't industrialize discipleship. We recognize it can only happen organically. So our model for discipleship isn't mass production and and industrialization. Our model for discipleship is the orchard. It's the garden. And, And I really hope that some of you being from Southern Oklahoma, you're reminded of this every evening. We, we, we have been intending for a long time to do a little garden and we keep putting it off and I came home one day and my wife is a doer. So I'm happy to contemplate ideas and talk about them and even read about them on the internet and find articles and, and follow Facebook pages of people that do the things I like to talk about. But my weak part is in actually getting up off the couch and the computer screen and doing them. And my wife had gathered all the scrap wood on our property and had measured it out and cut it because she owns power saws. I do not, my wife does. Uh, We are very comfortable in our gender roles, thank you. Um, But, uh, and so we built this raised bed garden. And I think about that every, I mean, it's so different than reading, following Facebook pages of other people's gardens. It's so different in reading about gardening. There's something about standing out there and she's put a little chair there that I sneak out to in the mornings before everyone's up and I sit by that. And I watch the growth that's slowly taken every day. And most of it's fun, some of it's not fun. Some of it is plucking up weeds. Uh, it's, it's, it's learning how to cooperate with the seasons that God has given us, but that process is beautiful and it's life-giving. And that's what our discipleship should look like. It shouldn't be this driven thing of obligation. It should be organically that we are resting in the raised bed garden of God and yielding to his wisdom as he, as he tends our growth. 
And so the secret to that is to recognize that although a lot of Christian ideology operates from the outside in, there are authority structures and there are power structures and you're supposed to obey and follow the power structures and and follow the authority and they'll tell you what is proper to believe and what is improper to believe and how much dancing is proper and where you're going to cross the line over to improper. I get there quick because I'm so sensual by nature, so I just don't dance at all. And so... And so, so, so they'll tell you all of those kinds of things. And at 50, what I'm recognizing, it is a mistake and a deception and a smokescreen to follow after that. There is no real spiritual substance there. There's just ideological convictions and the emotions that come when we attach ourselves to an external ideology for our identity. And Jesus came not just to set us free from sin, but the truth is the, 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 um, the, the challenge that Jesus most confronts in his ministry isn't acts of immorality. It is the substitute of mediated religious thinking for one's direct experience of God. Now, I'm not saying he never challenges immorality. He does. But the vast majority of Jesus' challenges, challenges are against that system, that mediated system, and calling us to return to following after the Spirit as we learn to cultivate and recognize our inner lucidity because that is the seat in which God has chosen to dwell. And this is the miracle that Paul came to proclaim, which, which, which is this, all of the Gentiles are supposed to benefit from the experiences and the accomplishments and the gifts of the um, Jewish Messiah. That's what's blowing everyone's mind. That's the tension we see in the Old Testament. And he even goes so far to say it like this. This was a secret. We didn't always know it. It doesn't mean that it didn't exist, but it was veiled. And he says, but now the secret has been revealed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And one of the ways we encapsulated it with this is with this graphic. And I'm sorry, I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit. I know that's frustrating. But if you'll just put that graphic up one more time for us to see. The way we encapsulate is this graphic. If you can imagine the incarnation, which means God dwells in Christ. And then Paul's going to come along and he's going to use these phrases, Christ in you and you in Christ. And it's as though if you could picture it this way, in the incarnation, the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And then uh, as we are faithful to him, I'm going to go ahead and put that up one more, a little bit longer. Okay, thank you. Then as we are faithful to him, this idea of Christ's life in us means that Christ is manifest in the heart of his faithful followers. And so in that sense, we, all, we also become an incarnation of the divine because we're an incarnation of Christ who lives in us. And what I said is in this sense... The return of Christ happens in any, every generation in which the body of Christ shows up like they're called and lives out their identity. Thank you <laughs> uh, for that. And so, so, so we, we've moved to that point and, and we were looking then as we look at these verses, particularly 28 through 29, let's just read them together. Paul says, we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with this strength that works powerfully in me. And we said that what you can see in these two verses is there's an action, a goal, and a source. 
the action or the means is proclaiming Christ in a very specific way through both warning and teaching. The goal, however, that is not the goal. That's just the means to the goal. The goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. And this is a little side thing, a little parenthetical rant, but, 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 but that's really important to keep in mind because here's the thing. If all we've done is proclaim Christ through warning and teaching, but that hasn't translated into real ways in which we are helping people cultivate maturity, then we really haven't done our job. The goal is to empower maturity in Christ. And then Paul says the source is his strength that works powerfully in me. We spent all of last week talking about this one point, the source. And what we, what we brought out was is that word that's, that, that says strength or power in your English translations is the word energia. And so it literally means the, the energy of God. And so what Paul is presenting is not a spirituality of obligation and discipline when you're gritting your teeth and I will do what's right even though my heart doesn't really want to go there. That, that's not what he's presenting. He's presenting a different way in which we can be invited to cooperate with the rhythm of the energy of God. But it only is accessible on a particular wavelength, if you will. And if we choose to not participate with the rhythm of God's energy, then we do get tired, we get exhausted, we get burnout. Or I guess the, 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 kind of the new phrase I've seen a lot the past few years, we, we experience compassion fatigue. Well, my fatigue has limits, but God's does not. And so my compassion fatigue isn't from engaging in the hard work of compassion. It's, in, it, it's, it's if I do it disconnected from cooperating with the rhythm of the energy of God. So every day I have a choice. Either I work for Christ or I work with Christ. And the vast majority of my life, I've tried very hard to work for Jesus. And I don't want to waste one more millisecond of my breath doing that because I've been invited in not to imitate Jesus, but to participate in the life of Christ. And that's what I want to do. I want to participate in his life. So I'm working with Jesus, not simply for Jesus. So then that leads us to the goal. Remember last week I said we're reversing these and kind of going backwards down them, down to the most active common denominator. But, but what is the goal? It is to present everyone mature in Christ. Now this is very important because I rarely hear in Christian circles, people talking about this as being the goal, being mature in Christ. Now, there may be proximities of that, but unfortunately, what most people take that, again, if your paradigm is that other paradigm of the industrialization of spirituality and discipleship, then, then what your paradigm is to be presented as mature in Christ means you know all the things you're supposed to know. You believe all the things that you're supposed to believe and you stop believing the things you're not supposed to believe. You're aware of what God endorses as ideology and you're aware of what God rejects as ideology. And the more your mind is able to distribute and, and acquire more full mastery of the knowledge of good and evil, then the more successful and faithful that you're supposed to be. Well. I am suggesting that discipleship doesn't get nourished from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Discipleship gets nourished by the tree of life. And so that invitation is extended to us, but 
if, if it's not ideology we're discipling people to, then the primary hope we give them is that somehow the, the main reason to be converted is so that you're assured of where you go in the afterlife. And again, it, we have heard this so many times. If you already know this because you were present before, you are banned from answering. And if you answer, and I know you knew it ahead of time, I will shun you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, big threat. <laughs> but, um, y- you know, Humpty Dumpty. What is Humpty Dumpty? An egg, right? Well, what's interesting, if you go back and read the n- nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty, it never says he's an egg. And in fact, if you look in the history of that nursery rhyme, there have been all kinds of other speculations about what Humpty Dumpty was, but historically speaking, it was not an egg. Um, One of the most common ones I saw is that it was probably a cannon that got pushed off of a wall and busted, and, and they wrote a nursery rhyme out of it. But the point is, why do we see an egg? Every time, if I say the word Humpty Dumpty, I don't know about you, but... I, I didn't just picture an, an egg. He's a modest egg because he always has trousers on. And so uh, he, that's good for us evangelicals. Um, but but he is, he's a half-clothed egg with arms and legs, right? And that's what's in my mind. Well, that's because uh, there was a book written called Alice in Wonderland. And in that book, the character interacts with Humpty Dumpty. And if you look at the early illustrations of Humpty Dumpty's interactions with Alice, you will see an egg. That's all it took for us to assume that's what this was all about. If you get told enough that this is about preparation for the afterlife, then pretty soon that's all you see when you go back to the scriptures. Even though... There is never, ever a place in the scripture where someone says, repent of your sins and believe that Jesus raised from the dead. Ask him into your heart so that you can be assured that you will go to heaven after you die. Not in there, nada. You will not find it. And yet we've built an entire religious movement around that idea, convincing everybody that that's what's in there. But it's not there. It's a great, we've been Humpty Dumpty, my friends. And it is time for us to do some research into the heart of what's actually being communicated here. And so, I would suggest to you to consider that the primary goal of our salvation is not our afterlife destination. The primary goal of our salvation is being being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what it means to work in cooperation with the energy of God to present every person maturing Christ. It's it's a recognition that the primary goal of our salvation is becoming conformed to the image of Christ. If we are willing to cooperate with the energy of God, then literally everything in our lives is used by the Spirit to form us into Christ. And this, my friends, if you were bound up in any way by well-meaning, misguided religious trauma, this will begin to alter that. Because I grew up in a system that said, what you're looking for is God's blessings. What you're seeking to avoid is God's displeasure. 
So you can join our group and we will tell you the things you need to believe and do in order to optimize your experience of God's blessings and to minimize the experiences of the curses that come from, from arousing God's displeasure. So we had all kinds of movements, all kinds of tools in order to empower us to do that. And so then life becomes a pursuit not of humility, but of arrogance because we're seeking to control the outcomes of our lives by learning how to control our God. Doing the things and creating the bargains that will increase our probability of his blessings and decrease our discomfort of experiencing his curses. And so then the people that seem to do that well, man, they're the ones that are lifted up as the models of success and maturity. And the people that seem to not be doing this well, well, they gotta be something wrong with their ideology or God would be blessing them. So if they could just figure out how to line up to the right ideology, there'd be less uh, displeasure and there'd be more blessing, right? And so we all try to figure these things out. And it, and it differs according to whatever religious group you're a part of. One group might emphasize spirituality experiences like speaking in tongues and being able to prophesy and that sort of thing. Another group may emphasize, no, you do that by memorizing more scripture. Another group will do, will do that, say, no, you, you, by, by the purity of their doctrine. Now those groups... Funny enough, they're discipling people to a doctrine that was codified in the 1500s, not the first century when Jesus was here, but that's a side conversation for a Reuben or a cup of coffee. But anyway, that is what they, 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 they so, so they want to disciple you to the proper doctrinal stances and, and convictions. Or, or maybe it's bound up in the fact that you have never drank beer and you've never danced at a, I mean, whatever it may be, there's all, it just gets so complex and exhausting and it's really exhausting if like me you were right in the middle where I was someone who couldn't really do it but I learned how to pose and make everyone pretend that I was following these ideas and it almost led me to a complete breakdown and I and it did lead me to an identity crisis and I don't want to waste my life living that way. And so, so that is one option. But see, with that, you interpret negative events in your life as somehow you're doing something wrong and the positive events in your life as endorsement that God is endorsing everything about you and you're doing something right. But here's the thing. If I'm willing to cooperate with the energy of God, then he uses everything. So if I could stand before you and say, I'm so proud of daughter one, two, or three because of this great moral thing that they did, and somehow in some part of me is going, probably had to do with my clever parenting, and, and project that glory, then, then I'm successful, right? But if daughter one, two, or three does something that I know you'll judge me for, I'm not gonna stand up here and share it with you. I'm ashamed, I'm gonna I'm, I'm hide from that. Not that I'm ashamed of my children, but I'm certainly ashamed. And this is the thing, at that moment, I'm not even worried about them. What I'm worried about is my reputation. I'm worried about what you might think their behavior reflects upon me. But you know what? With another paradigm, you recognize if it's a good day or a bad day, the Holy Spirit was faithful to work to conform us into the image of his son. And he uses my wise and healthy and righteous choices. And he uses my unwise, rebellious, and yes, sinful choices. 
all of it is used in his merciful hand. Sound too good to be true? Well, it, probably, it, it does. So let's see if it's in the scripture. This is a very familiar verse. You may have it on a t-shirt or a coffee mug. Romans 8, 28 through 29. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined, read the dark part with me, to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, I, I, am, I do apologize for those of you who only have verse 28 on your coffee mug. This is a sad day for you, probably. But there's more to the context in verse 28. We love to hear God's going to cause all things to work together for my good. And then we immediately take it out of its context and run to this kind of churchianity that's unique to America. And we make it a triumphalistic statement. It's all good. It's all going to be turned out okay. It's all good, man. It's all good, man. Oh, boom. You didn't see that coming, did you? For the two of you that know what I was talking about. Um, but... But, uh, uh, what was I? See, I shouldn't have done that. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Verse 29 follows 28. Thank you very much. But that's not it. It's, what is my good? Is it my comfort? Is it my prosperity? No, my good is being conformed to the one in whose image I was created. We talk about integrity as though it's telling the truth. It's much more than that. We live a life of integrity is when we're growing to live into wholeness. And the reason why I want to be conformed into the image of Christ is because that is the way I work optimally. Why? Because that revelation of Christ is not a contrast with who I am. It's meant to be a mirror of who God's made me to be. And if I will have the courage to believe it, this is called faith, then I step into that and I began to see in the fruit of my life that which I have chosen to trust about me as revealed by Jesus. So here we see everything. So your, everything you're ashamed of to everything you're proud of, the Spirit uses all of these exper human experiences to work to conform you to the image of Christ. And one of the most dreadful places to be would be to be morally successful according to your ideology and yet never actually taking time to enter into a process of being conformed to Christ, which is why it was never my goal to raise good Christians. It was only ever my goal to raise people who knew how to be faithful to Jesus because they understood his faithfulness to them. And it's still my goal. That's how we lived in our house, but it drives what we even do here in this community. I don't care about whether or not we consider ourselves good Christians. I care about whether or not we're growing in our faithfulness to the living Christ as we follow him and live from that place where he dwells in us. This word conformed literally means showing similar behavior from having the same essential nature. Showing similar behavior by having the same essential nature. Now, that's, that's important because most Christian people want discipleship because they don't believe they share in the nature of Christ. 
And they're trying to discipline themselves so that they can pursue a lifestyle and actions that will then help them feel confident that they are in some way reflecting the nature of Christ. But that's backwards. The only way we're successful is to recognize we've first been given as a gift the sharing of that nature of Christ. And now what life and discipleship about is learning to work out what has already been worked in. And, and that's the invitation for the spiritual life. So, so that's the goal. And the goal is to be brought into maturity in Christ. If in our examination, we are asking more questions about whether or not our behavior was sinful rather than whether or not our behavior was faithful, then we are mistaken. We have fallen for the deception, for the smoke mirror. What you want to do is cultivate an awareness of your deepening manifestation of the life of Christ through being faithful to him. That is the most important goal. If you make sinlessness your goal, you will constantly be oriented to the thing you're focused on. It's very simple. I mean, if I tell you right now, I will uh, get, I've got a Ted's Tacos gift card that I've been eating on all year. I got it at Christmas time. And if I were to tell you, you can have what's left of my Ted's Taco card between now and December. I'm not going to reveal how much is left or how much I started with. Uh, if you will just, for the next three seconds, refuse to think about a pink elephant, boom, you've all lost. Because once you've been told to not, what you're not to focus on, that's what you become obsessed with. That's why so many evangelicals are so unhealthy. They've been told to focus on the habits of sinlessness. So all they think about is their sin. What if for a moment, for 30 days, we just said, just for 30 days, because within 30 days, hopefully we believe God's merciful enough to not kick us out in 30 days. So just for 30 days, I, I am not going to focus on my sinfulness. I am just going to focus on Christ's faithfulness, and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit at the end of every day to show me where I neglected or responded to faithfulness and to empower me to maybe make a different decision in the following day. And so now you've got a month full of just thinking about the faithfulness of Jesus and the way the Spirit empowers that same faithfulness in you. See if that preoccupation doesn't have an impact on the obsessiveness over your sin. Uh, because the way God delivers us is recapturing our attention to something else. Not working in us so we're guaranteed not to fall again. So it's a different goal. So then, so this is the goal, is to, is to pursue maturity in Christ, which has some implications. It means we're not all, we're always as mature as we're going to be if we're willing to cooperate with the energy of God. So what's the action? It's the first thing that's mentioned, and this is what Paul says. He says that I proclaim Christ through warning and teaching. Obviously, what Paul is talking about is he's talking about the celebration of the stewardship of his ministry that he's been given among the Gentiles. So to the Gentiles and to the Jewish uh, and to his fellow Jews 
who have yet to embrace the full revelation of Jesus as Messiah, he sent to them too. But what is his goal? His goal is, whether they are religious or irreligious or pagans, his goal is simply to proclaim Christ. And, and, and the way that he proclaims Christ is in two different verbs that he mentions, by both warning and by teaching. That is what it means from Paul. But what we're concentrating on in these two sermons is, 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 is going very quickly of understanding his story and their story, which we've done a lot of. But we're trying to move into what does it mean for our story and what does it mean for my story? So although Paul is talking about his ministry, I still think it's instructive to think about what might it mean for my story if I, if I responded to the call simply to proclaim Christ. Now, this is very important because we have to understand what we're talking about when we say we're proclaiming Christ. I am not talking about proclaiming Christian ideology. There is a place for that. It is a helpful place. Christian theology and ideology can support spiritual growth. I, I don't want to be misunderstood as, as insinuating that it can't, but it can never replace what our ultimate focus is supposed to be, or then it goes from, from ideology to idolatry, and just read through the Bible. That doesn't work great. So, so uh, I, have to, I have to recognize what it means to proclaim Christ. Proclaiming Christ is not telling others what they should do and believe. Now, there may be a place for that in your friendships, and there may be a place for that in conversation, particularly if you have a friendship where that is welcome and invited, that can be effective. But, so I'm not saying never do that, but I'm saying that's not what this is. This word proclaiming, that's not what it is. Proclaiming is not telling others what they should do or believe. Proclaiming Christ is a declaration or announcement of what Christ has done and what Christ believes, both about his God, himself, and his people. So proclaiming Christ isn't telling others what they should do and believe. Proclaiming Christ is a declaration of what Christ has done and believes. So the first person to whom you should proclaim Christ every single day is yourself. You are the first object of your evangelization. It's yourself. It's the most important work because I promise you, if you cultivate a rhythm of life of proclaiming Christ to yourself, you'll become a person that brings Christ in the lives of others without having to set them up with a debate or an argument or to be intrusive about their lives. You'll be present as Christ, and I promise you, you will be giving the opportunity to share Christ because people are open to it, not because you're forcing yourself in the door. But that's why the first important work is that you proclaim Christ to yourself. Declare to your soul all who Christ is in you by daily meditating on his wonder. Well, that sounds kind of highfalutin already. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Three weeks ago, I shared with you a great beginning point. You can do the, the Christ meditation or the prayer of St. Francis, I mean, the, the, the prayer of uh, St. Patrick. I love the prayer of St. Patrick. It's a little longer and I haven't memorized it yet. So when I'm on the go, I just do the Christ meditation. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. Christ is one with God. I am one with God. 
Now, it has taken months, but that has begun to transform my self-perception. And the way I realized that that subtle transformation took place is I realized I can't feel lonely anymore. Now, this may or may not be helpful. I'm not saying I never feel alone. I do feel alone, but I don't ever feel lonely because this meditation has increased the revelation that I'm inseparable with God because of what Christ has done and because he lives in me, that my experience with God is like the experience of the breath in my lungs. And so, and so, so you could do that. Begin, do the Christ meditation or do the prayer of St. Patrick. But the point is you're seeking to convert, to convert your unbelieving self before you presume that you can pass that on to others. Now, he does use the word. He says the way we do it is that we proclaim Christ through two things, warning and teaching. And I think that this becomes very important. Warning. Well, warning means more than just warning. If you dig into, go, go look up your, your Greek lexicon, what you'll see is warning means to admonish or to warn or to counsel or to exhort. To admonish, to warn, to counsel, to exhort. To, to exhort. Now, this is why it's so critical that we do the hard work of self-examination so that at least we're being honest with ourselves, which by the way, I was posing before all you and while I was learning to be honest with myself. So it took a while for that integrity to go from my private life to my public life. But that's why it's critical. The first person you've got to be honest with is you. So if you're honest with yourself and you really connect with what paradigm of spirituality is driving my behavior, well, at that point, here's what you can see. If my goal is moral growth, then warning has to do with using fear of judgment or hope of reward to motivate a change in my behavior. If, however, my goal is spiritual growth, then warning is for the purpose of becoming aware of the toxic ways of thinking that create resistance to shalom. Now you might say, but what about the sinful behaviors? Well, as Derek enlightened us this morning in our community group Bible study, that doesn't begin with our action. It begins with what we're thinking and what we're believing. So what I want to do is I want to... Uh, have the courage to cooperate with the Spirit and become aware of the toxic ways of thinking that create resistance to shalom, which is God's peace, which is God's wholeness, which is the point of our salvation, by the way, in this life. It doesn't wait until the heaven life. Now, what I am supposing to you, what I am going to do is to be very offensive and confrontational because that's just in my nature. That's what I enjoy doing. I am not suggesting that you carve out a rhythm of life so that you can discern whether or not you're toxic. I am saying you are to toxic in ways that you're unaware of and you carve out a rhythm of life so that you can come with intimacy and vulnerability before God and say, Holy Spirit, show me my toxic ways. 
Show me my ways of thinking about you and about myself and about humanity that are toxic. They're rooted in some kind of religious ideology, but they're not rooted in the revelation of God revealed in the face of Christ. And so let me just give you a permission. If there's any belief, conviction, or theology that doesn't look like Jesus, and yet it affects your view of God, maybe consider letting it go. Maybe consider saying, I don't have to be bitter about the years I spent believing this. I don't have to be bitter about the people that taught me this. And I can perceive that there were seasons where this even benefited me at some point. But now I'm in the process of maturity. And now it's time to let this go because it's creating a false image of either God, myself, or humanity because it doesn't match with what was revealed in the face of Christ. So prioritizing that awareness, it requires the courage to do the work of being honest with yourself about the toxic beliefs and behaviors that are hindering shalom in your life, which means your greatest teacher are the moments in which you're most aware of the interruption of shalom. When you're most aware of the the interruption of your emotional shalom, your emotional peace, because you're offended or you're angry or you're hurt or you're insecure, or when you're having a harmful reaction to your partner or to your children or to your friends, your worst moments are the very best teachers because I don't have to fear them out of shame because I recognize that conformity isn't the goal, but transformation is. And so I enter into the process of meditation by contemplating my failures or the ways in which I've given myself to those things that hinder shalom. That's your teacher, my friends. Remember, the obstacle is always the way. That is your teacher. Go to the thing that stirs your anger, your shame, your rejection, your self-pity. Sit with that for a little while. Invite the Holy Spirit to come in and talk to you about those things because that is how we enter into the process of real transformation is that I'm being honest about the toxic beliefs. Now, it's not comfortable, not comfortable at all. I have written and burned my confessions before, uh, but it has always been critical because in that place, I don't hide. I'll try to hide before you, I'll try to hide before my wife and my family and my friends, but I can't hide there. So I get to confront the reality of what's really going on in the depths of my heart. And I realize most of the time that I thought it was righteous indignation, it was just an unbridled ego. And the spirit was kind enough to walk me through that journey. So for example, is your God angry and vengeful? Or is he the God revealed in Christ who reconciled the world to himself? You see, you have to know that. Because if you are living with subconsciously an angry and vengeful God, you will be a miserable, angry, and self-serving Christian. You will manifest the image of that which you worship. That's why it's critical that I know, am I worshiping an angry, vengeful God or am I 
daring to believe the miracle that the God who created everything is most perfectly seen in the incarnation of Christ. And that therefore, the God I serve is the God who at great cost to himself has lived in such a way to reconcile humanity back to himself. Well, living with that God produces a little bit of a different flavor of fruit from our lives than the other one, but you have to become aware of that. Or that's about maybe your beliefs about God, but what about yourself? I really should just stop now because right now we could all be friends. If you are ready, and I mean that not as a joke because we're not always ready and the Holy Spirit knows when we're ready, but if you are ready, listen to the people who are closest to you when they point out your destructive patterns. When they tell you how you make them feel, when they tell you how your tone sounds to them, listen, you're not gonna want to. What's gonna happen is that inner defense attorney is gonna start speaking in your mind and start creating a case against them. You're gonna start coming up with reasons why their experience or interpretation, although it may be true for them, is still nonetheless wrong. And then you're gonna try to convince them of it and what's gonna happen at the end of that is two people even more alienated than they were at the beginning because they can't be vulnerable and honest with one another. But if you're willing, and it takes the grace of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you're willing to listen though, I am not saying the way they communicated is all gonna be right. I'm not, ever, I'm not even saying their interpretations and assumptions are right. But nonetheless, what is correct is the way they are experiencing your presence. And you need to be aware of that. Do they experience you as they would experience the presence of the living Christ? If not, then there's an invitation for me to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Listen to the people who are closest to you when they point out your destructive patterns. Take time to consider what they reveal, particularly when their observations offend you. And I added this last part because I kind of eased into this a little bit, but I just took like safe things. Like, yeah, you're right, I could use, I could learn to use a few, lose a few more pounds. You're right, I'm kind of cranky. I should probably have a better morning routine and evening routine so I get in bed better. But when they say, you take a tone that sounds judgmental and arrogant and I feel belittled. Well, I'm not so compliant when I hear those things. Well, what I do then is I start defending myself. And if that defense doesn't make them say, I'm glad you clarified that. My emotions are so silly, Artie. Lucky you're in my life. When that doesn't happen, then I get on the defense. And then I start exploring their vulnerabilities that I'm aware of. I weaponize my intimacy with them because I've learned things about them through the intimacy of our friendship or our marriage or our relationship. And then I weaponize my intimacy so that I can exploit their vulnerability and harm them. And I think that I'm at the most evil of my existence whenever I do that. And I've done that kind of stuff for a long time. And I hope not to waste very many more moments of my life. What I wanna do is listen. It's so difficult 
But if you recognize the Spirit's working for your good to conform you to the image of Christ, then maybe we can listen to those criticisms even when they are not delivered in the most helpful manner. I think of the the prayer of David in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the humility. Lord, is there any offensive way in, in me? Show me and then lead me onto the path of life. And then he says, this is teaching. And I'm not gonna spend much time on this, but this can include, but isn't limited to formal ways of learning. And what I think would be good is if you pursued self-awareness and self-reflection before the presence of the Holy Spirit and take time to discover how you most effectively take in information. It's not gonna be the same. I know we elevate, well, readers are better than listeners and no. How do you most effectively take in information? I've gone through seasons where I've watched silly motivational YouTube videos every single morning when I get up. Uh, During those seasons, that's helpful, but it's not helpful all the time. It ebbs and flows. Sometimes I'm reading, sometimes my book, sometimes my Kindle, sometimes I'm watching, hearing podcasts, sometimes. But you need to understand how you work. How do you most effectively take in information? And then from that point, my simple question is, How are you using that knowledge to cultivate a rhythm that allows you to grow in your revelation of Christ in you, the hope of glory? Because in growing in that revelation, that is how we grow up into maturity. Reading, listening, debating, discussing, journaling, all of these things can be be beautiful. But what I would suggest is that you purposely seek out relationships in which you take time to talk about the most important things. It doesn't mean that friendships in which you don't do that are somehow lesser friendships. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm just saying in the gamut of our relational connections, do you have friends with which you can talk about important things? You can open up your heart. You can share some vulnerability. You can share some, uh, some, some honesty, some integrity. Pursue those spiritual conversations and read your books and your podcast or whatever, but talk about what you're learning with someone. Dialogue about it. Maybe they're gonna learn from you. Maybe you'll learn from them. So worship team makes their way up. I wanna close with these thoughts. Number one is this, realize that spiritual maturity can be hindered or enhanced by the choices we make and the rhythm of life that we prioritize. As we close in worship and reflection, ask the spirit to reveal your next step. Not everything, just your next step. Remember what Paul says in Galatians 5, the way we defeat the works of the flesh is simply by keeping in step with the spirit. And we learn to keep in step with the spirit by one micro decision at a time. It is as simple as that. And if you're hoping, the spirit's not gonna hide that wisdom from you.